Uh, I'm going to do the Lectio this morning, and it's from Psalm 29. Um, and instead of reading the whole Psalm this morning, I'm just going to focus in on one verse. It's a really beautiful Psalm. I'm not trying to, you know, ditch what it says, and it's focused on the power and strength of God's voice. Um, but the reason I want to focus just on the one verse today um, is because I want to demonstrate how we can connect scripture with our everyday, with uh, stuff that's going on in the world. And I understand that many of us have felt quite disjointed from scripture, that it seems uh, out of touch with our lives and this world. And I, I won't take away from your experience with that, but I may be able to offer you another experience, an additional experience where you do find a pathway and an understanding of how to glean from scripture what is most needed for each day. Uh, I think it was Jeff who already alluded to the news of this week. Um, we're here in British Columbia. We have been confronted with the tragic news that a mass grave was found wherein 215 children lay buried on the grounds of a residential school in Kamloops. Uh, what is truly horrifying about this revelation is that there is no doubt that more of the same is yet to be found. So today, I will use Psalm 29, verse 11, as intercession for the Indigenous community, and not even like just those directly linked to this particular discovery, but all of those across our nation that were harmed by the residential school system. So verse 11 says this, the Lord gives strength to people. The Lord blesses people with peace. So this morning, we'll be interceding for our brothers and sisters in all our First Nations across Canada and asking for the Lord's strength and peace for each of them. Let's pray. God, for the horror that has been repeated on our brothers and sisters, give them strength for each day and peace for each night. For the losses that have been left, for the losses that have been lifelong and multi-generational, give them strength to keep telling their stories and peace to not let it overwhelm them. for the way their voices have been muted and their questions left unanswered. God, give them strength to keep talking 
and to leave no question unasked or unanswered. For the way that justice has passed them by, God give them peace in knowing that your arms are not too short and your voice is not too small to bring true justice to each of them. For their empty arms and their broken hearts. Bless them with peace and an understanding that you know each name of those children. For each child that was lost by neglect, disease, or abuse, God give those left behind a peace that passes understanding. God, even in their fresh grief, their outrage and frustration and their righteous anger, give them strength to continue on and peace that they might rest from the struggles of each day. We pray for strength for our brothers and sisters to stand in this storm and a haven of peace that gives them shelter. Amen. I would just like to encourage you. I know when there's news like this and it's so terribly sad, we can get lost um, in the grief of it. But I will encourage you to carry this prayer for strength and courage into this coming week. And as you listen to the news and watch interviews, pray for strength and courage for each person in this community. Blessings. Morning. Morning. As we look forward to partaking in communion together today, we have chosen a communion liturgy that reminds us of the value of truly loving one another and learning to authentically love those that live on the margins. It speaks to the art of looking for one another's strengths and the value that each brings to the table, even when we differ in lifestyles and perhaps beliefs. It is entitled, God Calls Us. We are all invited to come and gather at the table of love and liberation to feast on the dreams of God, to be nourished by but, but a taste of what God desires to do among us. God calls us as we are from wherever we are to come and be in solidarity with Christ who lives and loves on the margins. God whispers, come and live abundantly, turning from all that claims blessings flow from money, power, or control. Come and love relentlessly, following Christ on paths of uncertainty, taking risks for one another, calling down unjust power from its throne and lifting up the lowly, the impoverished, the burdened, so that we might enflesh new possibilities of healing, of connection, of freedom from all that destroys. 
When these are the desires of our hearts, we open ourselves to God. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so let us come to the table, expectant, eager, open to tasting the rich blessings of heaven, born from unexpected places and people and experiences. In this symbolic meal, we remember the life and the death and the resurrection of the one who still takes on flesh among us today. On the night that he would be arrested, Jesus gathered his friends and companions, and in the midst of a tense and dangerous time, they found each other at the table, connecting over the story of God, who was enfleshed among them. And as they did so, Jesus took the bread and gave thanks to God, broke the bread, and shared it with his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take your bread, but then pause, if you would. When the supper was over, he also took the cup and gave thanks to God and shared it with his disciples, saying, Drink. From this, all of you, this is the cup of the new covenant. Do this, and as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Whatever you're using today. So now we pray, come Holy Spirit, breath of God, renewer of life. You have settled on these elements and all who have partaken so that we might be transformed in our remembrance of your radical love. Your grace and mercy that makes all things new. Amen. I would like to pray for Karina as she gives us the message today. God, I pray for Karina that you would uh, help her to hear you this morning. Give her the confidence to speak the things that you have given her to share. I also pray for each of us that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears to hear what you're saying and the changes that might need to happen in each of our lives. Be with us this morning. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm just gonna pull up my notes here. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being a part of our service this morning. We're glad to have you here. We are in the middle, or sorry, I should say in the beginning of um, a new series called Reimagining Community, Prayer, the Bible, all the things. And it's a little bit off script, but um, I just was thinking about very often we can we can hear the word reimagine and we might think that that's like equating with like pretending or this like tralala idea of like let's just imagine. But I think what we're actually being invited into is really gritty, really important, and really hard work that actually needs to be done. I don't think we can look at the things that have happened in the world and that continue to happen 
at the hands of the church, at the hands of government and these policies and these things that happen that maybe we've been able to be blind to because they don't affect us, those, we need to reimagine our relationship to the rest of the world. And, and it's not a small thing. So um, reimagining is gritty work that we're inviting ourselves to participate in. So um, this week, I thought I might do something a little different from my normal where I like go through a big text and find all the pieces to it. Um, instead, I wanted to give kind of three little snapshots of reimaginings that have been happening for me um, when reading my Bible and in doing so invite you to reflect or notice different ways that that might be happening in yours or maybe something that I'm doing might like feel really appealing. I think this process of reimagining is essential to our faith. And this morning I happened to read these words from, I'm just gonna call him a public theologian, Dante Stewart on Instagram. He's totally worth a follow. And he said, Jesus invites us to rethink our faith and life stories, deconstruct toxic theologies and practices, unlearn unhealthy ways of being human and being neighbors and embody the possibility of better for all of us. That's what this reimagining is about. Now, for me, reimagination and renovation are almost always synonymous. They kind of imply the same thing. And right now, our family has been doing some literal, literal renovations in our home. We decided last spring, 2020, that we wanted to renovate our backyard, build a covered patio. So we started talking with the construction company and the landscaping company in May of 2020. And we all thought, oh yeah, we could have this thing wrapped up by the end of summer 2020. So let me just cut to the chase and give you the punchline, dear friends. We still have not finished the covered patio project. Um, and this is due to these incontrovertible universal truths about renovations. They always take longer, involve more waiting, cost more money, and probably involve more mistake fixing than you planned on. This is just the truth. Not to mention the facts that uh, you'll have to revisit the bank for a second line of credit just to afford a few sheets of plywood these days. But renovations are, in the end, worth the absolute pain when you have the vision and capacity to create something better, more functional, or more applicable for the life that you're living. So even at almost finished, our family is seeing some of the benefits and can imagine how glorious it'll be when it's all done. So we move through the difficulties, we cry our tears, we revamp plans, we hire the experts, we have the inspections and we keep moving through all of the worsts that come up in the process so that we can experience the finished product. And as it has been for our backyard, so it has been in my faith and I think for many of yours as well. And before I get too far into this, I wanna say that if you're in a space where you feel like you need to disengage from reading the Bible for a whole host of reasons, I think that's totally okay. That can be an important step for healing. I mean, I needed to step back for it from a time as well. In theory, I think the Bible is meant to be something that adds to your faith, but it is not part of the Godhead, not part of the Trinity, right? We don't worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, right? And I acknowledge 
the Bible has been used in such harmful and abusive ways that engaging with it might be very challenging or even impossible for some. I believe that the Bible submits to Jesus and Jesus is the word of God and the word of God is bigger than the Bible. The story of God and of humanity is revealed in its pages, but by no means is contained or limited by my understanding or misunderstandings of them. So like many of you, I grew up in an era of Christian certainty. There was one correct way to do everything, a correct way to have church, of singing songs, of raising kids, and of reading the Bible. Anyone who did differently, was probably wrong, maybe not saved, definitely in trouble for their eternity. In fact, we often use the Bible as a way to prove things and end discussion on the matter. God said it in the Bible, I believe it, that settles it, right? It's like when push came to shove, if you were to ask, what does God love more, you or the Bible? It seemed like the Bible might win. Is that just me? <laughs> With a faith paradigm like that, it's no wonder a renovation is needed. It would be like thinking that it's normal to live with leaky pipes and moldy drywall, and then also to wonder why you're always sick. My faith needed to call Ty Pennington and have a move that bus moment. I found that a settled faith led to stagnation and decay more than the peace and prosperity it promised. So somewhere along the way, renovation started. And my relationship with the Bible was part of that. So here are some ways I'm reimagining my relationship with the Bible, also known as how I go looking for good news. So way number one, sometimes when I go looking for good news, I find it by ignoring chapters and subheadings. So a different, better news meaning is revealed. And, and I discovered this in a new way this semester. I'm doing my master's program, I guess, because I don't know, the pain of renovations isn't enough. <laughs> but we had to read a whole bunch of books written by or attributed to Paul. And I decided for these assignments, I would read Paul's letters as they were originally intended, as letters. So this required me to blow past chapter distinctions and also to hold subheadings with an open hand. I'd, here's just a few fun facts and like they're all verifiable on the internet. So obviously like 100% foolproof, but chapters and subheadings were added to our Bibles only in like recent few hundred years. The Wycliffe English Bible was the first to use official chapter divisions in 1382 AD and it wasn't until 1555 that there was a general standardization of the Protestant Bible on where those chapters, verses, order of the books of the Bible, all of that happened. So really 500 years. Um, headings, those little titles that you find throughout the Bible, they vary between different versions of the Bible. So like New Living Translation, the uh, New American Standard Translation, the New International Version, they'll all have different headings. The great thing about headings and chapters is that they can help you all get on the same page really quickly. The subheading can give you a preview of what you might expect to read. However, the problem with chapters and subheadings 
is that there's someone else's interpretation. Now, it might be a well-studied or well-intentioned interpretation. However, there really is no such thing as a neutral or objective interpretation. And those subheadings and those chapter demarcations do create suggestions as to what you should notice. This can be positive or negative, depending on the perspective. And they can also break up thoughts or disconnect ideas that really should stay connected. So don't throw away your Bibles because of them. But if you need to, sometimes it's really great to write salty margin notes to bad news headings or add your own better news descriptions. I'm not going to judge. At the very least, you want to be aware that this is happening. So when I was doing this assignment, I noticed something that really made me reimagine what Paul meant when I read through Romans chapter one. In the NRSV, which is a version I often start with, there's a subheading after verse 15 that reads, the power of the gospel. And the verse that follows says, see if you've heard this verse often, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, faith to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for it for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. I seem to remember hearing this verse, verse a lot and always as a standalone verse. And the spin was always this. See if you heard some of these things growing up. Don't be afraid to tell people that they need to become Christians or pray a sinner's prayer or live a Christian life or they will burn forever in hell. Don't be ashamed of this hard truth. Tell everybody that they need to get saved. Telling others the good news about being saved from God sending you to hell is how you show you are living a life of faith. Don't be ashamed of God's gospel or he'll be ashamed of you. Here's the problem I found with separating the verse. What comes before, the for, for, for a few verses before read like this. For I'm no, for I am longing to see you so that I, this is Paul talking, may share with you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Hence, my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And on it goes. Here's a little bit um, that you might want to know about Paul's life and times that can be helpful in understanding that whole package together. Paul lived in a shame and honor culture. And, and shame and honor is really judged externally by the religious law, public law, court of public opinion, all determine what makes you good or bad, worthy or unworthy. So in that culture, being a man and having supposedly manly traits like aggressiveness, dominance, purity of class, culture, and family made you honorable. Being anything but a man or having supposedly feminine traits of compassion or passivity was dishonorable and shameful. And when you keep that in mind, often what you'll notice is that these stories are speaking directly to their cultural norms and ways of being. In other texts, Paul says things like, he's the Pharisee of Pharisee, or he is, he's a Roman citizen, which is basically he's 
he's kind of pulling from that honor culture and says, I hold a position of honor here. But then he will often flip the script on honor like Jesus did and says, I want actually to be with you and, and share spiritual gifts to encourage you. But wait, actually, he says in Romans, I want us to share with one another to encourage one another with whatever is fueling our faith. Me, the tip of the top, the cream of the crop, am indebted to those that our society sees as the bottom for all that they have taught me. I wanna share this good news with you. I am not cooperating with shame anymore. The good news won't let me. The good news of God is that anyone who wants to believe they belong can belong. They can be saved from these ideas of hierarchy, shame, and honor. The justice of God, righteousness and justice, same word, same meaning. The justice of God, the ways of setting things right when it comes to God, looks like childlike belief in what you can't explain. You just know you belong to God. And the good news is we get to participate in creating justice when we live like we all belong to God. Can you imagine the disturbance and offense that saying something like that in a culture that depended on dominance, hierarchy, purity laws, cleanliness laws, family laws, or even one like ours, our North American culture that's more classified as a fear and punishment culture to keep people in line. Like think of the questions that come up. What do you mean everybody's in? What do you mean we just have to live like it's true? What do you mean being saved by God looks like creating a world where everyone belongs? No wonder they killed Paul. That is disruptive, radical, and offensive. This is the life of faith we're being invited into. Rachel Held Evans captured the essence of these verses in her book, Searching for Sunday. She said, what's offensive about the gospel isn't who it keeps out but who it lets in. Paul realized he needed to be encouraged in his faith by people who lived lives that were nothing like his. I think if he was writing to us today, he might replace Greeks and barbarians and tell us how thankful he is to be learning from marginalized people, women, LGBTQ plus folks. And if that sounds a little bit scandalous to our ears now, I think we might be approaching how groundbreaking this good news of Jesus was to Paul. So the first thing is better good news can emerge when I look beyond chapters and subheadings. Way number two, sometimes when I'm looking for good news, I find it by decentering the idea that we are wretched to the core. This was a really important one for me. I'm going to work with a couple of lectionary passages here, reading apart from each. In Isaiah 6, uh, where is it here? Um, in Isaiah 6, it, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then it goes on and it says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. What I was taught to notice in this text was how unclean and awful Isaiah, Isaiah realized he was. And that all of his people were also awful. And we needed to believe and understand the same thing about us because somehow believing that to the core, we were awful, we were depraved, we were wretched, was the only way we could be motivated to become better and the only way we know that we needed Jesus to save us from God's anger over our sinfulness. I thought to be faithful, I had to read everything with the lens of wretchedness. But if you want a challenge that will change the world, I invite you to try a lens of love, true love. May it follow you forever. This time, what I saw was God's intention to restore us to our true identity, beloved children of God, which the lectionary passage in Rome reminds us, reminds us of this. It says, all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. I could see through Isaiah's confession, a pathway to restoration for those that have forgotten the truth of who they are. Reading with a lens of love rather than wretchedness shows me that Isaiah is actually demonstrating what happens when we disconnect from a God who is love. From that place of disconnection, we are capable of doing terrible things to the earth, to one another, and to ourselves, while we try and create that sense of being safe and loved through our false self, or what the Bible writers sometimes call the flesh, rather than through our connection to eternal love. Sin is our disconnection and the harm that flows from it. Isaiah reminds us first, when we catch a glimpse of the fullness of love, the fullness of God, we can't help but realize our disconnection and that it produces a serious sickness in us. So what is Isaiah doing? He's confessing. I think he's telling the truth of his broken experience and the truth of the broken system he participates in. Truth is the essential first step to reconciliation with the God who operates by consent. God cannot and will not violate our control of self because God's nature is love and he can only do what is loving and love does not violate consent. Telling the truth is often a painful process. Isaiah doesn't sugarcoat it. We have so many complicated and competing pieces that must be restored to love. But God is up to the task. And through Isaiah's example, we can see that. So are we when we tell the truth and reconnect to love. Isn't that good news? We're not basically wretched, though we can forget who we are and participate and perpetuate wreckedness. wretchedness. The good news is this. When we tell the truth, we can participate with God in restoring the world to love. I kind of get excited when I read with this lens, not for the painful, painful parts. I mean, those are just painful. Like 
renovations are painful or surgery is painful or chemo is painful. But when I tell the truth, I choose to expose my wounds to the great physician instead of believing the lie that I'm better off hiding or pretending or trying to fix it myself, that's gonna kill me. It's gonna kill us. But I get so inspired when I hear your personal stories of the way you're telling the truth in your life. I see our church participating in this process collectively. We're telling the truth about injustice. We're bravely learning to name places where we've participated in injustice or been silent to it. We're letting God move our community towards more love and towards the restoration of all things. I'm honestly so proud of you and of us. And I just want to say, keep going. The truth will heal us and set us free to be the beloved community God dreams of. When I read Isaiah with a lens of love, I can see that telling the truth is step one to participating in loving justice. Step two is letting God expose the wound and heal it. Don't pull back if you can help it. Discomfort is a gift towards healing. And then step three is answering the call to believe in your healing, your reconnection with love, and to join the restoration of all things as you are also restored. Will we be a send me, a pick me church? I think we can do it. Reading with a lens of love helps me find more good news. Last, third, sometimes when I'm looking for good news, I find it by looking for what power does and how it operates. The last lectionary passage, passage is the story of Nicodemus found in John 3. And I'm just going to recap it rather than reading, just for the sake of time. Nicodemus is a big deal in the religious community who comes to visit Jesus under the cover of night. He recognizes Jesus can't be doing the things he's doing without being connected to God in a powerful way. He wants that power. He wants answers. He wants facts. He wants a connect the dots guaranteed picture. But Jesus won't have any of it. Jesus talks about belief, about faith, about not understanding God, but believing, trusting that God has sent Jesus to demonstrate the healing and forgiving power of God's divine and everlasting love. And Jesus invites Nicodemus to trust in the goodness of God, to believe that God loved the world and does not condemn it. When I look for what power is doing, I can see the challenges that arise when we are the ones that have a certain amount of privilege or power. Through the example of Nicodemus, I can see that power is afraid of not having answers. It wants certainty and proof and reason. It wants to keep control. Power is afraid of what trusting love will do. But like the story in Isaiah before, we won't find what we're looking for if we come under the veil of night. Love requires exposure to light. We won't accidentally stumble into justice. We need to let go of certainty and grab onto trust and expose ourselves to the truth. The last part of this passage in John is well known to many of us versus John 3, 16 and 17. 
which basically say God loved the world and he gave his son so that anyone who believes or trusts will not die, but be reconnected to the source of eternal love because God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to restore the world to love. When I look for what power does, I can see that Nicodemus was right to assume that God was the ultimate source of power. It's what he recognized in Jesus and why he came to him. But can you imagine how it would have messed with his understanding of what the point of power was when Jesus says the ultimate power in the world loves and to demonstrate that it gives, it pours out, it does not condemn. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. A love that gives is shameful. A love that pours out and does not produce judgment or create hierarchy or shame is unheard of. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be renovated, reborn. You need to reimagine what being truly alive is. Trust in the God who is love and wants to bring life not just to you, but to the whole world. Those are my three ways, not the only three ways, but some of the three ways I've found life in re-engaging and reimagining how I can read the Bible. I'm excited and hopeful to belong to a church that is committed to the message of Jesus, the word of God, and doing the work necessary to see God's dream for the world come to life in our community of belonging. For me, part of that is happening by reimagining how I read the Bible. It gives me a new perspective, and it, and it turns out the Bible is full of actually good news. Now, good news is not always easy news, but good news always bears the fruit of love. And love does hard things, impossible things, miraculous things. When I read Romans 1 and reimagine it, I see the good news includes everybody, literally everybody. It upends divisions of ethnicity, race, gender, sexuality, ability, all of it. Everyone belongs, especially the people you were told had to become something different to have a seat at the table. The good news is that you belong and we need you here so we can learn from one another. I am not ashamed of how wide God throws the net. Like Sarah said a couple weeks ago, even them? Yeah, even them. In Isaiah 6 and Romans 8, I reimagine the good news and it tells me that I'm a child of God and I'm not defined by my brokenness. But when I tell God the truth about it, the good news heals and restores and makes a pathway for participation in love. In reimagining John 3, the Bible tells me that good news sounds like hard news to those that want to hold onto power and certainty. But God shows us the pathway to fullness is one that gives, pours out, and levels the playing field. Reimagining our relationship with the Bible can make you dangerous to tradition, exclusion, power, us and them thinking. Good news is strong stuff. No way this kind of love is flaky. The Bible is full of stories that will move us to change our world. 
You want to reimagine your Bible? Reader, beware. You'll never be the same. Amen. <laughs>